you are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back to part three of the Tasmanian Perspective Special of Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and I happen to have a severe allergy to infinite growth on a finite planet, which probably explains why I'm constantly breaking in hives. A long episode today, so I'm going to try, probably in vain, to keep my introduction brief. As you may be aware, or may not be aware if you've just tuned into PCAP for the first time today, back in February, I cruised up and down the length of Tasmania looking for mainland permaculturists and or degrowth advocates to let me into their homes and point a microphone in their general direction. Remarkably, four people took me up on the offer. The aim of the interviews was to capture the zeitgeist of why people are making a move from the mainland to the Apple Isle and to get a snapshot of the various initiatives, projects and communities that have sprung up. The response to the series has so far been incredibly positive. My last interview with Mike Stas has had the highest numbers of listens in its opening week by a considerable margin of any PGAP episode. So much, in fact, that PGAP is now in the top 10% of downloaded podcasts, according to Listen Notes, apparently. This is to put absolutely no performance pressure whatsoever on my next two guests, Caroline Smith and Kirk Hall. Caroline Smith is a permaculturist, educator, and co-editor of the book Permaculture Pioneers. Over the years, she moved from UK to South Africa to the Dandenongs to Penguin, northwest Tasmania. Giving that living in Penguin means that she can now have a north-facing house with ocean views. I doubt she will be moving again anytime soon. Kirk Hall has also been all over the world and now lives in Devonport, also in the northwest. He is a big-time degrowth activist who runs several degrowth groups on Facebook. He is also setting up a tiny house village in the northwest coast. Two incredible guests with two incredible stories. Intersperse with all of that, we play the track of the week. Uh, a welcome back to Formidable Vegetable with a track Small and Slow. This is from the album Permaculture, a Rhymer's Manual. Uh, and I think this is a perfect soundtrack to the interviews on today's episode. Given that Friday the 5th of June is World Environment Day, it is so essential that guests such as Caroline and Kirk can continue to do what they do best, leading by example for local lower impact communities full of community and food without all the materialism, carbon and needless growth on a finite planet. Enjoy. Caroline, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Michael. I'm lovely to see you. Now, I'm just having a look at a book that you edited called Permaculture Pioneers, Stories from the New Frontier. Before we talk about the book, um, but just tell me a little bit about yourself, your passions, how you got into permaculture, a little bit of history with that, where you maybe where you were before and where you are now. I'm originally from the UK and uh, I suppose I'm one of the leading edge baby boomers, the dreaded baby boomers. And um, I won't hold it against you. Won't hold it, that's, <laughs> that's nice. 
actually born in London, but grew up with a mother who loved nature and we used to go out on walks all the time into the forests, into the fields, and she taught me about nature. And I was one of those ghastly sort of, um, you know, nerdy kids that knew all the trees and all the birds and all the flowers from a very early age. I just loved nature. Went to university and studied chemistry and biological sciences. I uh, studied plant pathology, and it was really as a plant pathologist I became very disillusioned with the way that agriculture was um, being used, uh, and because that was really the heyday of chemical agriculture. And something inside me told me that that was a very wrong way to go, because one of the things I had to do was to sterilise the soil, and then I would plant the plants in the soil, and I would introduce different fungal pathogens one at a time to see what happened to the plants. I don't know what it was, something inside me said this is not how nature works, simplifying the natural system, which to me was wrong. And I, I worked in that industry for about three years and then I left pretty disillusioned and went into education and taught science, biology, chemistry for many, many years. I was in South Africa for a while and we came to Australia in 1983. And I have had a relation in Melbourne and he came out one day and he said, have you seen these books? And he had a copy of Permaculture 1 and Permaculture 2. They were written in the 1970s. And I, I just looked at this and I thought, this is amazing. This is really the sort of stuff I've been really looking for. It was kind of that holistic view of how things could be, how, how agriculture could be, because of course permaculture started off as permanent agriculture. And it just seemed to me a much more sensible, holistic way of looking at how we organise ourselves, how we organise not only our agriculture, but our settlements and all that sort of thing. So a better Green Revolution than the Green Revolution yeah, that we got in the late 60s then. Definitely. So. I mean, the Green Revolution, when you look back now, of course, was heavily pesticide-dependent, fertiliser-dependent, water-dependent, all those sorts of things. And that is all part of that, really, that reductionist scientific view of nature which I pretty much rejected, I had rejected by then. I haven't rejected science, I think science is incredibly important. It's the way we use science and what kind of science we choose to um, bring to our problems is, is what we really need to look at. And became very, very interested in the whole design aspect of permaculture. It just made incredible sense. And at that point I'd moved from teaching in schools to tertiary education. Well, that's when I decided that I would look at, because I was in education, I would look at learning in permaculture for my PhD studies. I uh, got in touch with Hugh and Bruce, and I sat through one of their PDCs, and I collected data from a whole bunch of the participants. I talked to them before they entered the PDC, why they were doing it, what they hoped to gain from it, why they were interested in permaculture. I tracked their learning through the PDC, how they were learning this stuff, what, how they were making sense of it, all that sort of thing. And then I took four of them and followed them for two and a half years after their PDCs. I learnt that permaculture attracts people from all different backgrounds, 
you can never really sort of look at someone and say that person's a permi. <laughs> <laughs> There's amazing variety of people that are interested in permaculture and also that they, they shape their permaculture to their own interests. So the question for me, I guess, is how come not everyone's attracted to permaculture? Because it seems so natural, so such common sense, an incredibly deep and profound and systematic way of organising ourselves for our own benefit and for the benefit of the earth. Why doesn't everyone see it that way? So. <laughs> no, well, well. <laughs> that's, my, that's where I guess I am with The interviewee becomes the interviewer <laughs> with their own question. I'm going to, I suppose, answer that with an observation that I had living in, um, in inner city Melbourne for so long mm. that um, permaculture is very trendy. and um, It's become so. It has come so, and I think it's become an almost like an identity tag like everyone wants to be a permaculturist Mm -hmm. or be associated but what happens is when reality click that it's actually very hard it's hard work it can be hard especially if you're starting up someone also just a trudge of going from house share to house share and setting something up and getting kicked out and i do wonder sometimes if like all skills some people just love gardening no matter what and other people will only do gardening if um, their survival depends on it. Um, or they'll, they'll come around with the AK-47 and pinch your lettuces off you. Which is a short-term solution. Which, is what, you which is what could happen. <laughs> but at some point even they're going to have to grow lettuce because this is, this is true. Yeah. So this has all resulted... Well, one of the results um, of, of where you've been and where you've come is the, the book, Permaculture Pioneers. Mm. Would you like to give it an executive summary? Executive summary, okay. Kerry Dorbel, my co-editor and I, this came about from one of the permaculture conferences that was held in Melbourne, I think about 2009. And the keynote speaker was Professor Stuart Hill, who's probably quite well known to a lot of people in your audience. And Stuart was putting the case that permaculture, so far it was all about the doing bit, which is what you were talking about. You've got to, it's, it, obviously it's more than gardening, it's, it's a whole design system and you know, it's about designing your, your um, you know, living spaces and, and even sort of uh, community design. It's not just about gardening. But Stuart was of the view that permaculturists were all out there doing these things, but not necessarily, it wasn't really being reflected in the kind of psychological and cultural changes in the society. So I might have my permaculture place here, and there's yours there, and there's yours there. But we're still divided. We're still divided. So there were sort of other layers that we really needed to, to deal with. Um, in order to kind of make this truly holistic, if you like. Um, and Stuart put out a, um, a challenge to the permaculturists. We wanted to actually uh, record what was happening at the, at the conference. We were really impressed with Stuart's um, address. So we started talking about that. And then we decided that there might be a book in this. 
stupidly probably, because it took five years to write the book. But we started to think about, well, what are other permaculturalists thinking about this? We came to the idea that we were really looking at um, what we call embracing the inner landscape. So the outer landscape was, you know, the, the, the garden and the house and all those sort of design elements. What's happening in our culture and our psychologists that sort of link in or are informed by the outer landscape? So we, we thought that would be a nice, interesting thing to explore. We weren't sure what it all meant. So what we did was we invited um, actually 24 permaculturists to reflect on Talk about their journeys. How did they get to where they are? What are the psychological and cultural aspects of permaculture for them? What are some things that they've really had to reflect on? So that was really where the book came from. And we ended up with a wonderful sort of selection of people, um, very much gender balanced, age balanced. And the way we structured the book was we started with the, with the elders um, well, David Holmgren wrote the first chapter, and then we started with some people who've been around permaculture for a long time, like D Terry White, Robin Francis, mm. Math Max Lindiger, Vries Gravestein, who was my teacher, right through to younger people. And we ended up with, for example, Josh Byrne, who you know, you know from Gardening Australia, mm. who's actually a permaculturist. Stuart Hill wrote the afterword for the book. I think it's a pretty good read. And people who've read it really enjoy it. It gives you some insight into the sort of people who are interested in permaculture and what they're doing in their lives and what it means to them. So, yeah, although it was a bugger to write, like trying to get permaculturists to sit down and write a chapter is worse than herding cats, but we did manage it. And, um, yeah, we think it's giving some good insights into how people see permaculture. Well, what I really like about... Um dare I say, compilation books. So when you get a chapter from someone else's perspective, mm. they're, they're the books that I like to read the most because, I, I don't know, my brain can kind of chunk things yep. better. And, you know, you get someone else's perspective, so it varies it up. So you feel like you're sometimes reading a series of booklets rather than one person's opinion exactly. that you have to get right mm. to the end for. So And so many different perspectives. Mm. And, and one I particularly love was written by a great friend of mine called Jane Scott, who sadly died of cancer about, probably about 10 years ago now. And she taught permaculture up in the Dandenong Ranges in, in Melbourne for many, many years. She was a great inspiration. And her chapter is called my, To My Great-Grandchildren with Love and Hope. So she saw permaculture as something giving hope for the future. So that's a particularly beautiful chapter. So, yeah, there's so much. There's, you know, there's a lot of practical stuff in here. You know, you, some people you imagine they're talking about how we can really change the world and these are the things we want to do. And other people are much more perhaps reflective about, well, you know, does it really mean that? And, and what about the spiritual aspects? Because... Bill Mollison, of course, wasn't interested in the spiritual aspects. Bill's thing was it was a practical, mm. practical design system. And you go out and you, you do your design system. Other people see it as a more, I, don't know, I suppose, spiritual approach to life. So there's so many permacultures 
Very interesting, and mm. we'll uh, definitely provide a link for that I hope in the so. description. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so and you a can plug, all go and buy it. Yeah. The, the book is uh, all proceeds from this book go to the Perma Fund, which is an international permaculture fund which funds projects in developing countries. It's for a good cause. Fantastic, especially <laughs> so the Baptist doesn't stop at uh, permaculturists' no. plots in Australia. No. And it uh, is, it, they are all Australian permaculturalists, but um, maybe someone would like to write the second edition and have a bunch of permaculturists from other places. There you go, Michael, that's your next project. <laughs> I assume you're not volunteering. <laughs> <laughs> One of the questions I did want to ask was, like to discuss your move to Tasmania and why Tasmania? I think that's a real pertinent um, question at this time because there's a mass exodus out of Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, um, encouraged by the governments now. I mean, they know that they <laughs> stuffed up um, Sydney and Melbourne and too big for their boots. So everyone's flooding out. And if you're an alternative person wanting to escape climate change, it's either uh, Mullumbimby or Tasmania. <laughs> I mean, obviously you came here a little bit before the mass exodi, but um, why Tasmania? Um, we lived up in the Dandenong Ranges in Melbourne. We had a little six-acre organic orchard up there and we ran that for 20 years. But the main reason we left is probably a bushfire waiting to happen. Um, Black Saturday was enormously influential on us. We were absolutely we weren't that far from the bushfires. We also felt that we were getting too old to really manage the farm well, so we decided that we would leave. And the options were sort of moving into further into the city of Melbourne. We just couldn't afford to do that. Prices had started to get ridiculous. Anyway, we didn't want to live in the suburbs. We'd always loved Tasmania. We'd been to Tasmania on holidays. Uh, our children had flown the nest and gone back to the UK, so we didn't have any great ties there. And so we decided, let's have another look at Tasmania. We, like many, climate change had influenced us as well. Uh, we were looking at the maps and <laughs> where would be uh, less horrendous in summer than Melbourne. Mm. Melbourne was getting really, really a difficult place to live in the summer. Obviously, Hobart would be the thing that most people would think about, but if you start looking at the, this is my science background coming out now, if you actually look at the predictions, the weather, weather pattern predictions, temperature, rainfall, look at soil distribution around Tasmania, it seemed to us that the northwest coast would be the most suitable place to live. Um, we looked for two years to find, we wanted to build, we wanted to still have that kind of permy thing about building the sustainable house. Uh, so we were looking for a block of land. We couldn't find a block of land, but we did find a house that we could retrofit. And northwest Tasmania is one of the few places in the southern hemisphere where you can actually face the sea and face north. Double bang for your butt. Absolutely. So we're very fortunate that we, we found a north-facing house which actually has a sea view. And I'm fortunate to be sitting here as well, looking, in, <laughs> looking at the sea, at uh, the Bass Strait, uh, as, yeah. as we record. So, yeah. so we're very happy here. We've been here eight years now. We've... Um, Found our tribe, as you probably always do. Mm. We have some good friends here who are like-minded, uh, managed to find some work here as well, uh, still in education and you know, mixed with all kinds of people, all different backgrounds. Not everybody's a Fermi. Lots of people 
would find permaculture worldview probably at odds with theirs, so that's okay. You can work with everybody. Coming into Penguin, it's you know doesn't scream progressive alternative town like Mullumbimby or Dalesford do. Um, and yet, right smack bang in the middle of the town, there's a reseed centre that just does so much and it kind of just does its thing. And um, the Livewell um, place in Wynyard mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So, is that reflective of the northwest coast so that it doesn't jump up and down saying, look how permaculture and progressive? We are, but you just kind of do it. And um, as much as I don't want to feed into the north-south divide, are there differences mm. in the communities in mm. the northwest compared to, um, say, in the Huon Valley? There is a north-south divide, which I find amazing because the state state's about you know two yards long. Whenever but humans can create a binary, they will. They will. <laughs> They've done a damn good job in Tasmania. But um, northwest coast is traditionally very conservative. It's been logging country, mining country, farming country. Uh, there's very much more conservative than, say, where we lived in Melbourne. And that's fine. Um, I think we are fairly low-key in what we do. We, don't, we have to live in the community. We hope the community, uh, we in the community will come together. So we don't sort of shout it from the rooftops, but we, we just beaver away and do our thing. Permaculture cannot afford to live in its own bubble. It has to reach out and meet people where they are and understand where other people come from. Otherwise, it's not going to get anywhere. And I think this is one of the, perhaps, criticisms that people have of permaculture. It does tend to be a little bit kind of isolationist and elitist and Mm. it's got the answers and, you know. And I don't agree with that at all. I think... I think permaculture's got some amazing principles and ways of living, but they are not necessarily part of the value system of many, many people. Everybody wants a good future. You, know, you have to sort of choose the aspects of that come from sustainability thinking that will resonate with people who perhaps can't stand the greenies, you know, and there's a lot of that sort of thing in the Northwest. So you, I find you have to find common ground with people. And there's no, I think, better example of a stark cultural divide, I think, in all of Australia um, than over the logging. Driving to Tas- Tasmania, it's been really stark to me. Like in Victoria, they try to hide the logging by having trees, you know, adjacent to the road. Here the logging comes right up to the edge of the road and the dialogue, you know, just by reading (laughs) the Mercury is um, a one of either logging and having jobs or not logging and to hell with the jobs. And that seems to be many people's mentalities. We've been talking about... (laughs) modern monetary theory and how um, it's possible to have another conversation. I agree that there is there's a bit of a binary here. It's either logging in jobs or logging in no jobs, which is a very unfortunate binary because, as you say, there are many, many other pathways for people to do creative you know, employment and have a sustainable forest uh, industry. And I say industry because I'm not totally anti-logging. I'm certainly anti-logging old growth forests, but I think, you know, we have a lot of plantations here as well. 
and they can they could have some sort of you know offer some sort of jobs for people. It's very easy to for people here to to react in a very kind of uh, way in which they do see the world as you've described. And we have to be able to say, well, there are alternatives to... We, everybody wants meaningful employment. I don't think anybody, even the sort of most sort of extreme logger, wants to see the, completely, the forest disappear completely. I, I can't see that they want that. Um, although sometimes I think some of the logging is done out of spite because there is a quite a strong anti-green view up here. I, I think we have to we have to work with. We can't just dismiss modern monetary theory is kind of a way of. I'm probably not the best person to talk about this, but from what I understand, it's a way of understanding money can be put into a community or into an, into an economy in such a way that it can be economically active to support people's work. So it links into things like universal basic income, probably better links into job guarantee ideas where meaningful employment can be provided for people. And, and there's so much work that needs doing in all communities. You know, there's work that needs been, to be done in the environment. There's work that needs to be done uh, in aged care, in, 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 in building, in, in road maintenance. There's all sorts of things that need doing. Um, so it really says, well, you could actually put money into those things. Why do we not put money into those things? The money is there. We have a sovereign currency like the Australian dollar. We, we can produce more money into the economy. So how that links with permaculture? Well, permaculture is able to give um, guidelines, if you like, to create a sustainable settlement. Um, and what would that look like? For, so where we are here in Penguin, for example, it'd be lovely to have a conversation with people in Penguin. What would a sustainable penguin look like? And it doesn't mean that you're all going to have green stuff going on. It's, well, what, what would be sustainable for our children's future here? What would we want? What kind of industries would we want? Uh, which are sustainable and look after the environment, which we all love. How can we support jobs in those areas? So those are the kinds of conversations I, I'd like to, to see happening. And I think they are happening at different edges between people, but I think we have a very long way to go still. And speaking of sustainable communities into the future, mm -hmm. I also read in the Mercury uh, that Tasmania had a listing economy but that's recovering now because of the red-hot real estate market. And, and that's leading to economic recovery, but of course that's economic recovery by ever-increasing mm. property prices, which you mm. can only really have in an economic system that presupposes infinite economic growth mm. on a finite planet. Some of the things that have happened to Melbourne and Sydney, I'd, I'd hate to see the same happened to Hobart and Launceston um, with the prefab concrete replacing beautiful mm. old buildings. So you work so strongly lo locally in the permaculture movement. How do you um, see that in relation to the you know larger scale issues of of addressing neoliberalism and real estate prices have risen a lot over the last year or so. Um, a lot of it is, well, COVID's had something to do with that, I think, as people have started to 
to you know the so-called improve their own houses. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of people coming from the mainland as well. Uh, climate change is causing that. People are also realising that they can work from home because of the COVID thing. So there's been a lot of movement into the uh, Tasmania and it's a beautiful part of the world. Why wouldn't you want to live here? So that obviously has pressure on houses, um, which is very unfortunate for the locals because it means people here who, a lot of people here are low income. There's quite a lot of poverty, particularly in the northwest. They were finding their rents are going up or well, they can't afford the housing anymore, so you're getting a bit of a, a relocation more inland from, from the northwest coast as well, which is often not really talked about. We all know in the big picture that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. There's only so much stuff to go around. So I guess, again, the, the, the conversation needs to be about how can you live in a sustainable way? How can you reduce your footprint? Do you really need the Mac Mansion? Do you really need the, the second, third car? Do you really need all these sorts of things? And again, we, we're, we're very much trapped in, you you and your colleague talk about the matrix. Yes. We're yeah. trapped in this way of thinking about, um, you know, progress equaling um, stuff, you know, and that's how you demonstrate to the world how successful you are. So we've got a long way to go in challenging some of those ideas. And unfortunately, those ideas that developed, I suppose, pre-war, post-war in, the, in Western countries are spreading everywhere in the world. And you, know, you see a lot of countries uh, need the, the, some of the people in the in places really would like a higher standard of living, and maybe some of them should have a higher standard of living. But again, you know, as an educator, these are the sorts of things that are still not really being addressed in schools. Um, environmental education is a sort of a weak, weekly um, addressed in, in school systems. Um, in fact, if I can get onto a bit of a hobby horse here, the, the, the push for STEM I find very unfortunate because although I'm a scientist myself, uh, the push for STEM is really part of the neoliberal agenda. And, um, you know, wanting if you look at the writings, for example, of the previous chief scientists who talks about the STEM agenda as contributing to economic growth. So they've made those connections, um, whereas in fact environmental education, which was really quite strong in the, at the end of the 2000s, has been pushed into the background. And this is something for educators to try and deal with, but we're, we're like, I think we've gone backwards. In that, in that regard. Just going back to something you mentioned a little bit before about permaculture not just being, you know, a rationalist look at what you do with your garden plot, but also stuff we cultivate from within, like tending the gardens of our souls, for mm. example. And when we look at the growth-based system, the matrix that we're stuck in, um, do you um, believe the adage that you can't change the system without changing yourself? Do I believe it? Or do you see merit it's, in it's the a claim? Very mm. difficult one. From my own perspective, I think I don't know what changed me. I don't know what there was deep inside me that made me realise that the industry I was working in wasn't healthy. 
And maybe it goes back to those childhood days where, uh, you know, I was very much involved with the natural world. And then I was working in a world which was actually probably trying to destroy nature and simplify nature. Before now, as I see economic growth and economic gain, and then because all of the chemicals that were used in agriculture, obviously were for the you know part of the market economy. So all those things I started to understand all that stuff um, slowly, I guess. But I think that for me, the, the sort of interior stuff about love for nature for me that came first. Now it doesn't mean it's going to be like that for everybody. Um, people I interviewed for my thesis, some of them were coming into permaculture because I just heard of it, you know, what's all this stuff? Or they lived in arid areas and they wanted to know how to save water. Or they could, they might have been, one particular guy was a broadacre farmer and he knew that he, every year he put more superphosphate on his land and every year his yield would go down. And someone said, oh, you need to go and look at the permaculture. Okay, so, that, so they were coming in from a different perspective. So maybe these two just inform each other all the time. It's not one happens before the other. And, and they both grow together. You your interior understanding grows at the same time as what you do out there on your block of land or whatever, or in your, in your community. So it sort of happened together, I think. And the more you understand the system, the more that changes you. And then, but changing the system is almost, I think, much more difficult than changing yourself. Well, I suppose <laughs> that there are more people the to change then. Yeah. We haven't changed the system mm. yet, have we? The mm. system's very, very entrenched. It may be at a fragile state. Mm. It may be it's about to collapse in many ways, but I, I think the, the system itself is what most people think of as normal life. That's how things are. And maybe so much of what we do now, um, because we, we always had the frame of we do what we do because we have to change the here and now, but maybe it doesn't have to be about that. Perhaps it's just that after the system perhaps inevitably collapses, that at least there are some skills and some mm. way out mm. being mm. when people, when they need to mm. adopt localised and simpler ways in order to survive, there are, yeah. there are those and tools some out there. And some, I can't see the system changing on its own. It's going to have to have pressures, all kinds of pressures. It's such an entrenched system. And, you know, it's, it's spreading. You know, you go to places like China and places like that. That system is just becoming established there. I mean, we may say, oh, you know, we know that doesn't work very well. But for many, many people in our culture and other cultures, that's what they want still. So I guess, it's almost um, like you've got to go through it to, in order to know that you don't really need it. I mean, populations are really sort of a, a difficult issue mm. because it impinges on ideas of human rights and, 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 and it's sometimes, sometimes seen as a, a racist discussion. Mm. And I'm very aware of that, uh, having lived in South Africa for a while myself. And then there was a view there that birth control, population control, was you know a, a sort of a genocide kind of thing. So it's a very very short area. Mm -hmm. But I do think that you know we know that the more educated women are, the fewer children that they they choose to have or are able are empowered to make those decisions. We know that. 
and their children are going to be better off in terms of education, which then, of course, has an impact on resource uses. So it's, it's a really complicated sort of mm. thing here. But I do think if you, if you look at some of the, say, the integral stuff, um, it's almost like we have to go through some sort of um, evolution of, I don't know, it's consciousness of what, that we almost have to go through a sort of having a stage where we are uh, consumers before we realise that consuming is bad news. We, and we have to have a sort of, because a lot of people in the world have very, very low uh, standards of living, very, they're incredibly poor. And who are we to say that they shouldn't have more? Mm. And maybe, and then you can say, well, maybe the earth can't support it. So maybe our footprint has to come down. But I can't mm. really see that happening anytime soon. So we're, we're in this kind of cleft stick in a way, mm. in a very difficult situation. Well, Caroline, thank you so much. <laughs> on that note, uh, uh, on that well, note. <laughs> this is what happens. <laughs> These usually start on a light note and get pithier and pithier mm. as we go along. Um, but before we go, um, do you want to just share some projects coming up with either you or Reseed or in the yeah. uh, area for any uh, listeners in northwestern Tassie yeah, or, or, or what, one of the many mainlanders coming down, what <laughs> they can look out for? Stay away. No, 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 no. no I didn't mean that. <laughs> that bloody Devonport yeah, no, Ferry, no, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, look, as I say, we, we sort of beaver away here. We, we've got a few things happening. Um, we've got EcoFest, and it's now bigger than Ben-Hur. I mean, EcoFest last, well, it was cancelled last year because of COVID, but the year before that, well over, well over a thousand people from the whole region attended EcoFest. And that is, um, see, it's down at Ulverston at the uh, wharf down there, and it's People have got displays, so you know, climate action might have a display, and um, industries that are doing interesting things in the sustainability space come and, and, and showcase what they're doing. There are talks right throughout the day, there are activities like you know, building a no dig garden, or you know, it's a whole lot of stuff, and it's really, really big. So, EcoFest is definitely worth coming, coming to Tasmania for. Reseed run a lot of courses. A lot of interesting things from sort of you know more philosophical, spiritual stuff right through to you know how to bottle your fruit at the end of the season. So there's a whole range of you know which is permaculture. We are part of a climate action group called Can West, and we try to lobby politicians. Not madly successfully at this stage, but uh, talk to them about the local issues that m they might be interested in. Um, Devonport. City Council have agreed after our meeting that they would look at power sharing and renewable energies and how they could sort of re reduce their power bills and reduce their, foot, their carbon footprint as, as a city. So those sorts of things go on. Well, fantastic. Know? And this also means we can end the interview <laughs> on a positive note yeah, as well. Nice. So um, I've been talking to Caroline Smith co-editor of Permaculture Pioneers. Um, Caroline, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Well, I've found it great. Thank, thank you, Mike. I've really enjoyed it and uh, good luck and I hope your listeners will come and visit us in northwest Tassie.
in the future when there's no more fossil energy how we gonna feed the masses have enough for you and me life today seems pretty good like we came out on top but I wonder how we're gonna get down just gotta be careful we don't drop take it slow make it small and slow to avoid the confusion use small and slow solutions yeah In your front yard You can grow most of your food In a space the size of your driveway Doesn't have to be huge Plant a seed Watch it grow It'll feed you Just let it go Don't want the pain Too much to maintain So stay inside the right size Take it slow Make it small and slow Who needs a green revolution When you got small and slow solutions Yeah mm. When we quit our oil addiction How we gonna get around Well, I think there's a small and slow solution, people, in this technology I found. It's called your feet, and they're pretty good for getting from A to B. It takes a bit longer, but your legs come out stronger, and there's lots of nice things to see when you take it slow. Make it small and slow. Don't create no pollution With a small and slow solution Yeah mm. Bigger isn't always better Faster don't make you stronger If we keep going the way we're going Oh, we won't be around for much longer No, no So instead of running towards a brick wall Why not walk instead and save your head? Bigger it is, the harder it falls. So keep it small, keep it small, and take it slow. Cause the dream of unlimited growth is just a popular delusion. So you small and slow solution. Yeah. I'm sitting here with uh, Kirk Hall, and Kirk Hall, I've known you for several years on social media, and so it is nice to uh, meet the idols. How are you? I'm very well, and it's also nice to meet you, Michael. <laughs> An absolute pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself, um, an open-ended question about your passions, what you've done in the past. I know you've done... Um, you've had a lot of 
lifetimes, a lot of manifestations, including writing backpacker guides for um, the southern, southern countries in the African continent, which I had a look at today. Yeah, as you say, I've, I've done a few things in the past. Um, I um, didn't know what to do when I was uh, at school, and so I chose a few things um, at the end of year 12 and uh, got into science, and I failed that. Um, so then I got into building. Um, so I was a quantity surveyor, which is like a building estimator, um, and that was okay, um, made a lot of money. I enjoyed learning about building, but then after a while it became a bit tedious, and so I changed career a number of times, and each time I changed career, I made less money, but I was more happy. So I headed off and did a few other things, and uh, I enjoyed tourism, that was great, happy customers. Here I am now in Tasmania, and loving it. Been here 12 months, a bit over. It was a hard decision to leave uh, Melbourne. Um, we had a beautiful mud brick home that I built there, and a permaculture garden, um, but we decided to leave, and um, Galinda, my wife, wanted to go to see some of the rest of Australia, so we lived in Alice Springs for, I was there for about a year and a half. Then we came down here, and it's, yeah, Tassie's wonderful. Yes, uh, in the post-COVID land, um, people are leaving the two capital cities, major capital cities of Melbourne and Sydney, basically in their hordes. <laughs> um, let's call a spade a spade. Um, I was almost one of them. I was seconds away from putting the offer into um, Penguin the other day. So what is it about Tasmania that's a draw card for so many people who are into um, permaculture? What What is it specifically about this state? Sorry to get a bit gloomy here, but um, I am of the opinion that um, that the world is not in a good state, um, that uh, we're not doing enough for climate change and a lot of other environmental issues. Um, so a large part of the reason for moving here was to be at a place which is safer for my family. So um, I'm an old bloke, not many years left in me. For me it doesn't matter, but I've got two adult kids and um, I've got you know, brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and so I wanted to be the family pioneer to leave the mainland and it was quite ironic that within days of arriving here the smoke in Melbourne got really bad and the bushfires, well we all know how bad the bushfires fires were and so Tassie is a bit of a safer place to live. We do get bushfires down here but not as frequently um, and water is more abundant and if things really go pear-shaped we can be a bit self-sufficient here. Can, how would you describe the permaculture or progressive alternative communities in Tasmania? How does it show up? How are you vibing the movement? Um, really well. Um, it, Tassie has a rich history of permaculture. Bill Mollison and David Holgren um, were, were, were there in Penguin setting up permaculture. Um, so I, I fear, feel I was 
you know, standing on, on sacred ground. The, the northwest coast is where the best soil is. But yeah, the, the northwest, we reckon that's, that's the, the, the centre of the permaculture world in Tassie, but we're a bit biased here. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and you're active not only um, on the soil of Tasmania, but also virtually on social media. I first came across you as you were the moderator on Join the Degrowth Revolution, which I'm a um, member of. Um, and that page has been very kindly in sharing some of the PIGAP podcast episodes as well. I was just wondering, what was your um, motivation for starting um, an online community based on degrowth? What is it about growth and degrowth and post-growth that resonated so closely with you? And um, from that, why um, is setting up an online social media community an important step for you? I think what puzzles me is why the penny hasn't dropped for so many people. Because we've all heard from time to time that, you know, if we all lived like Australians, we'd need five planets. Um, so obviously, the way we live is not conducive to um, a healthy planet. And yet, nobody really does much about it. So I um, used to live in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and um, every Saturday morning uh, my wife and I would sit up in bed and, and look out the window and across the, the valley uh, is your typical um, outer suburban large house with the ride on lawnmower and, and everything else and, and I really felt like I was um, in, on another planet so I, I can see the problems but you know you're sitting there looking out the window at your neighbours and and they're totally oblivious as I don't think most Australians are totally oblivious but they they can't see what the answer is they know that we're not living the right way but they think well someone else is going to solve the problem well that's not going to happen um, because there's someone else you'd think would be the government well the government is hooked on on GDP growth um, so, folks, if you're waiting for the government, forget it. It's not going to happen. Because I was thinking of voting for Labor next election cycle, and this time it'll be different, and if it doesn't work, then I'll vote Liberal. So, you know, I always thought if you just keep doing that, then then something might have to change eventually. No, no. Damn. No, nothing's going to change. <laughs> there goes that plan. <laughs> there goes that plan, sorry. Um, if you had to choose between the, the two big parties, yeah, Labor is marginally better than, than the coalition, but um, neither of them um, are going to save the environment. And, and it's getting serious because, you know, we've all seen the documentaries, so we know how bad it's going to get. And, but even the minor parties, most of them are not brave enough to say the problem is, is economic growth. And why is that the problem? Because study after study shows that you can't decouple um, economic growth from environmental damage. We need a radical change of culture. And the only way that's going to happen is if 
people like you and me, and I'm talking to you who's hopefully listening to this podcast, um, do something about it um, because the government won't. And, and what that something is, is basically learn about degrowth and spread the message. And the research shows that if you get 3.5% or less of the population actively pushing for something, then you've got a good chance of getting it. Um, so we need riots in the street. Um, but that's not going to happen until people know what degrowth is. So let's try to define, well, hear your definition of what growth, what bad growth is. Is it a systemic failure of capitalism? Is it the GDP? Is it individual consumption patterns? Is it how many of us there are? Is it all of the above? Is it none of the above? It's, it's all of the above, and it's more, um, it's, it's a very cultural thing. So advertising has a lot to do with it, and peer group pressure has a lot to do with it. And the advertising is not just when you see an ad for a product. Um, that's perhaps the least of our worries. Um, the, the advertising is when you see a glamorous Hollywood actor who looks fantastic, drives a really nice car, and people aspire to that. So status is, um, it's natural. We, we all want to, um, to have nice things and, and to have people respect us. And unfortunately, we've come to believe that status is in large part to do with our things and our job. Now, I've got some bad news for you folks, that um, the job is a big part of the problem. So a high status job um, is normally measured by income, and the more money you earn, the more damage you do to the environment. So even if you buy something that you think is good for the environment, you have no control over so let's take a solar panels on your roof. They're better than burning fossil fuel. But you hand over the money for the solar panels, that's great. But then the person who receives that money, they spend it on a new car, or they go for a vacation in a plane. You have no control over your money. So a large part of degrowth is, is not earning as much money. And that comes as a shock to people because that's what they've been aspiring to. They've been aspiring to look after their family and get a good wage. You know, also with the generational gaps, it's, it's becoming increasingly more expensive to have some of the necessities like a roof over your head. Um, so you've made a fantastic pamphlet that I saw. It's a double-sided uh, sheet with a few graphs and cartoons and words that describes degrowth. How would you describe degrowth? What, what's actually happening? Right. Well, there? degrowth is not recession. That's the first thing. So, in an ideal degrowth world, um, people will have less, but ideally they'll be happier because they won't be chasing the next um, 
uh, pay rise, they won't be chasing status. Um, life will be simpler. There will be uh, less commuting. Um, a lot of people won't own cars. So that means that we need a lot of structural change. Um, yes, a lot of people can do their own degrowth thing, but we're not going to get far because the people you mentioned who are struggling to buy a house, for example, and, and need to work long hours to get the deposit, you know, the, the, the whole system is wrong. The whole housing system is wrong. The whole um, commuting to work system is wrong. Our reliance on products from afar is wrong. Now, we're always going to need to import things. Um, we're always need, going to need some big factories. But, um, you know, ideally, more people will ride bikes and walk. Um, but if those who really do need a car um, will have one. But hopefully they won't need to drive it too far. Fantastic. And another thing that uh, a project that you're doing amongst your many fantastic projects, you're doing to address the housing issue and also the consumption issue and the McMansion issue, is that you are setting up a tiny house orchard not far from Devonport. What I might like to hear from you is just describe what that project is involves and also I suppose um, to clear any misconceptions or anxieties around um, tiny houses so it peers a lot up in the I suppose the social consciousness more and more at least at fringes and um, I think they've starting to become quite alternatively fashionable but I think with that people may have a bit of a misunderstanding of what they are and what they're not. We have started a project called Tiny House Orchard. When we arrived in Tassie just over a year ago, we started looking for land. And the announcement is that we finally found a block of land, uh, which we bought. And so we've spent the kids' inheritance. Um, sorry kids, no money left. Um, so we aim to create an intentional community. Um, so it's 20 acres. It's um, about 11 k's from the, from the Devonport CBD and it's, it's surrounded by farmland and, and indeed it is a farm itself and so the community will be partially self-sufficient ideally. Um, people will own their own tiny homes. Now the reason for tiny homes is because they have a low environmental footprint in their manufacture um, and in their, their running, you know, less heating, less cooling, all that sort of thing. But also, you can't put much in them, so less stuff. They will be movable. Um, so tiny houses, the, the, the picture you probably have in your mind is the tiny house on wheels. So a lot of them will be that. Uh, but there's also the tiny house in a container, a shipping container. So they're movable by way of a truck. and. They're my favourite, actually, because they are a waste product. So Australia imports more than it exports, so we have all these containers floating around. So think of a shipping container as an, an empty Coke bottle. It's the same thing. They're a bit bigger, um, but you can build a nice house inside them. And, yeah, so we start with 12 tiny houses. Hopefully we can get a council approval. 
and if we do it'll be good because it'll be the first such project in Tasmania probably Australia and the whole thing is not for profit um, yeah just a community of like-minded people um, hopefully looking after each other sounds lovely and um, one of the great things about my life post lockdown and coming to Tassie is I can get to meet my interviewees and also see your land you're very kind to show me and it looks really lovely and it's uh, um, you're not used in Australia to seeing nice soils it looks really fertile and, and it, great. it is good soil lots of water um, go onto Google Maps and, and you start at Devonport and pan out and you'll see all the dams so dams everywhere there's a big dam on our property which is great and and it was it was a tough choice what land to get because Tassie is really beautiful and we saw so many beautiful places you know next to a forest we chose a place which was close to where people can work as an environmentalist I didn't like the idea of a 50k commute to work for for the 12 households um, and yeah we chose a place where bushfire is is much less of a hazard mm, mm. just so important um, these days and you know Tasmania is certainly not immune from um, bushfires um, that the mainland's going through either um, two other projects I just wanted to touch on I believe you started up the join the degrowth revolution Facebook group and are a moderator of it and the degrowth its urgent page um, what was the drive to set these groups up and um, what are some of the um, big wins and perhaps some challenges of um, moderating an online community okay I I spend on a typical day um, three three hours probably on degrowth so I'm learning a lot um, my main aim in setting up the page well I've got a page and a group so the group is there so people can have a good chat about things and, and learn and, and share knowledge and, and the page is there it's more concise so when I find particularly good degrowth articles um, then I post them on, on that page um, the challenges yes there are challenges um, a, a recent challenge is we've had an influx of vegan versus meat eater debates so I created a, another group called degrowth agriculture um, and I I tend to push the um, those debates off to that group um, where we keep it all together because there's so many components to degrowth what the government needs to do what individuals can do um, how, how do we get it happening so because there are so many things we we can't get bogged down in one particular debate so the vegan versus meat eaters is one another one which is quite topical um, given this podcast is the population debate um, so we get extremes uh, in both ends of the population debate that can mean that we're not discussing the other parts of degrowth which there are hundreds of things to learn about degrowth yes I know nothing about debating population <laughs> <laughs> certainly we had a um a talk on another episode of another inter interviewee and I think we've reached a point like it's that balance between um, knowing that there are so many components but also 
picking your battles, but if you pick your battles knowing that there are so many other facets to it and it's striking that balance and there's never kind of one magic solution, you know, it's kind of it's a predicament where we're all hands on deck all at once at the same time. <laughs> Last thing I think I want to touch on was um, you showed me a script that you have for a movie or, or TV series idea. And I was just wondering whether you wanted to touch on that. The good thing about the, the group, um, Degrowth Join the Revolution, is that I'm always asked a lot of difficult questions. And so I've, I've had to think through you know, how it can all work. And so it, it seems to me that there's not a hope in hell that we're going to get um, governments around the world to agree to introduce degrowth um, globally. Um, I mean, look at the Paris Peace Accord. That was good that we had that, but it's too little too late. Um, and anyway, they're not implementing as much as they said they would. I thought, what if one country goes it alone? What would the results be? I wrote the speech. What, what would a prime minister say if they were to introduce degrowth? And they would have to do it suddenly because um, it would be the stock market would crash in that country and the people would be very unhappy. They'd have to um, they'd have to shut the stock market for some period of time. But we live in democracies, so then there'd have to be a period, perhaps six months, of, in, of intense um, learning about what the hell they've just done. Um, because the changes would be radical, you know, we need to reduce our consumption by about 90%. So that, that can only happen with massive changes. And then someone said, it's oh, good, you could turn that into a movie. And I thought, well, yeah, okay. So we lived in Alice Springs um, for two years prior to moving to Tassie, and it's pretty hot up there. And so I spent a fair bit of time inside over summer. Hmm. Um, and on a good day, I'd spend the whole day on degrowth. And one of the things I did was come up with a, um, a script for a, um, a movie. It's how ordinary people would react if, if the Prime Minister of a country or the President unilaterally introduced degrowth. That's a movie that people could relate to. What would I do? How would I vote? We live in a democracy. After six months of learning, how would I vote? So um, I, I would really like uh, to get that out to the public. So um, Kate Blanchett, if you're listening, or um, Wayne Blair, um, good Australian director. Um, Both of them listen to every single episode of oh, good, podcast good, every day. Good. Yeah, they write notes, we're in constant contact. So Thank you. I'll that's ask what, Kate for you. <laughs> that's what I like to hear. Um, look, I'll, I'll settle for Hollywood. So, so Leonardo, um, if, if you're listening, um, You'll do, you know. I do prefer the Australian movie industry, but Hollywood will do. Would Bollywood be okay? You can put it to music. Yeah, bo then. Bollywood. <laughs> Except that degrowth is predominantly a developed uh, nation thing. It's the developed nations that need to degrowth. Um, a lot of the developing nations need more growth, but they need to do it in in a sustainable way. You've proven yourself to be a little bit of a hub, Kirk. So if people were interested not only in um, being a part of the movie, or, but furthermore, being part of the tiny house, 
orchard or um, arguing, hopefully not arguing about veganism and population <laughs> over de trying to degrowth for evolution if they had other <laughs> points to share. Um, what can they do and where can they go? Okay, you can, you can join um, the various groups. So the main one is degrowth-join-the-revolution. Uh, you can look at the page. Um, you can also comment on, on, on the page. Um, so that's called degrowth-it's-urgent. Um, if you're into uh, agriculture and food choices, there's um, degrowth agriculture. Um, and in terms of Tiny House Orchard, there is a uh, Facebook page called Tiny House Orchard. Or you can look me up, so it's Kirk Hall, and I'm in Devonport, Tasmania. So if you type all that into the Facebook, you know, Kirk Hall, Devonport, Tasmania, you'll get me. I guess I just want to reiterate that um, degrowth is not going to happen um, unless the, um, the people make it happen. And the only way to make it happen is to learn about it. Now, you can get a university degree in degrowth. That's not necessary. Um, you could read my my brochure, that's as condensed as I can make it. It's an A4 sheet printed both sides. Um, but what I think you have to realise is that so-called green growth is not going to save us. So if you think that solar panels and electric vehicles and recycling and all that is the answer, um, the bad news is, folks, it's not. We have to change. Um, one little statistic to finish on is we've got seven years, if, if we keep burning our carbon at the current rate, we've got seven years of carbon dioxide production left to stay below 1.5 degrees C. Um, and then it's all gone, right? No CO2 left, so you can't put petrol in your car, you can't you know, heat your house, etc., etc., um, because it's all gone. Now, we all know that's not going to happen, so we, we're going to exceed the 1.5. We're probably going to, well, the science says we're looking at three degrees at the moment, so it's all quite serious. So we tend to think, ah, someone's going to sort this out. Well, they're not, folks. Sorry to end on a gloomy note, but it's not gloomy. I'm a happy person. I love what I do because I'm doing something. So once you get on board and start learning and doing, ah, it's, the problem doesn't go away, but at least you feel empowered by it. And any tips in terms of self-preservation or keeping one's spirits up? I think I, I drink spirits in order to keep my spirits <laughs> up, it sounds like. <laughs> but uh, where does uh, self-care come in? Uh, self-care is important. Um, I'm lucky. I've I've got um, a wife and a dog, and um, in, in that order, I must add, who, <laughs> um, I've got a very supportive wife, um, and I couldn't get by without her, and I, um, I take my dog for a walk in the forest every day, and she's gorgeous, and, um, and I've got something that I'm passionate about, and well, Marx, Karl Marx um, had a lot to say about a lot of things, but him and countless other philosophers have said you need three things in life to be happy. 
you need um, someone who loves you, you need freedom from poverty, and you need meaningful work. Well, I don't get paid for my work, but I feel it's very meaningful. The, the real answer is to change society. A big ask, I know, but if it doesn't happen, we've got a big problem facing us. Now, the degrowth revolution won't be televised, will it? <laughs> the revolution will not be televised. <laughs> degrowth is the only way, because if we're consuming too much, the only solution is slow our consumption. Mm. It's Sorry, but it's that simple. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Kirk. It's been um, great to put a face to a name. And uh, it's been great to not only see where you live and where you're building your projects, but also share your wisdom on our podcast. You know, it's a post-growth podcast, so um, it was about time we talked to the moderator of the degrowth groups. So, well, it's it's been a delight. You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, and you've just heard the interviews with Caroline Smith and Kirk Hall, as well as the song Slow and Small from Formidable Vegetable. So that concludes our sojourn up and down Tasmania. Uh, did you like your virtual holiday? Did you hate your virtual holiday? Are you completely neutral? Let your thoughts known. Don't hold back. Bye reviewing and rating pgap or sending us a message on the contact form um don't be shy now <laughs> i have no idea which episode we'll play next week um but it won't be tasmania anymore i've done a bunch of interviews in my temporary new home in adelaide uh, and so look forward to showcasing some of those very soon until then until then <laughs>